and then preach from Psalm 139 in the worship service. Um, I've really come to love the book of Psalms very much, and uh, I think it's very important for us as Christians to study them, to get to know them, in a sense to live our lives with them. Now, somebody would ask the question, well, why do you think that this is important? And, and there are several reasons that we can mention. The first of them is simply they're part of Scripture. And all Scripture is given to us for our profit, to instruct us, to reprove us, to help us to grow in righteousness. And so for that reason alone, we ought to study them. But another reason is that um, they have been well-loved by many believers for many years. Now, every once in a while, I've met a Christian who says, I don't like the Psalms. I, I don't want to hear from the Psalms. Don't preach from the Psalms. That's a rarity. More often than not, people say, I really love them, and they have meant a lot to me. Uh, of course, the book of Psalms is frequently quoted in the New Testament. The most frequently quoted verse from the book of Psalms is Psalm 110, 1, that occurs over and over again, and we'll see that a little bit later on as we move forward. And of course, the book of Psalms was the hymn book for the early church. Uh, in Ephesians 5, 19 and Colossians 3, 16, both of those places, Paul exhorts the, the Christians in the churches to speak to one another, which implies singing, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, however you interpret that verse, and I'm not sure where you are on that, whether that means to you the psalms only or psalms and hymns, that, that's not the point. The point is everybody agrees that when Paul speaks about psalms there, he's referring to these books, uh, this collection of poems that we have in the Old Testament. So there's a lot of reasons why we ought to study the book of Psalms and make it part of our lives. Uh, a couple of years ago, I set up for myself uh, in my Bible reading to go through the Psalms twice in a year, and that was very helpful to me for that year as I did that. You, there were many things that you could do, but there are problems that are associated with our reading of the Psalms, and the, the first one, let's be honest, is sometimes we don't understand them. They're not all simple and easy. They're not all Psalm 23. And so that means that sometimes we can be discouraged as we read them. Likewise, some of them are difficult in that they incorporate prayers uh, that sound very strong that are aimed towards our enemies. We call these imprecatory psalms. They're psalms in which we offer up to God calls to deliver us from our enemies and to bring judgment down upon their heads. And sometimes Christians don't like to think about uh, the importance of praying in that way. Or they maybe another way to put that is they're not sure how to do so appropriately because we don't want to misuse the words of Scripture, but at the same time, we don't know how to use them. Another way that, uh, or another problem that perhaps exists in our reading of the Psalms, and I'm just trying to be honest and frank about some of these things, is that our experiences don't always match the experiences of the Psalm writers. And it can seem that what they are describing to us is distant and removed from our own lives. We can read them, we, we see that David, for example, is struggling with this or he's struggling with that, but it doesn't seem to be something 
that is particularly applicable to me. And so while we want to read the Psalms because we know they're part of, the, of Scripture, at the same time, there are reasons that maybe we hold back from reading the Psalms. And I, so what I want to do in this time is give you an encouragement to read them and to, uh, to let them percolate into your life. Let's talk about some basic facts about them. You probably, if I gave you a quiz, you'd probably all get these all right. Maybe we should do that. There are 150 Psalms, which means that it's the longest book in the Bible. And by the way, it's incorrect to say, turn to Psalm chapter such and such. No, no, no. There aren't chapters. There are Psalms. So, and don't say Psalms 23. Say Psalm 23 within the book of Psalms. You know, just pet peeves. I'm smiling. Yeah, that's one of the problems with these face coverings, isn't it? You can tell somebody's eyes by how they're thinking sometimes, but you can't always see the, the smile on their face. The longest psalm is, of course, Psalm 119, and the shortest is almost right next to it. It's Psalm 117. The oldest of the psalms, anybody have an idea which one might be the oldest one? Pardon me? Yes, very good. Psalm 90 is probably the oldest. So we can date that somewhere around 1450 B.C., maybe 1400 B.C. The earliest psalm, or the newest psalm, the most recently written psalm, seems to be Psalm 126. And it was written after the return to Jerusalem from the exile. Now that tells us that the 150 psalms cover a period of about a thousand years. Okay? What happened a thousand years ago? Leif Erikson was coming to Greenland, one of the first Europeans to settle in North America. William the Conqueror hadn't even come to England yet and turned it into a, a Norman state. Um, that's a thousand years ago. And yet that's the period of time that is covered in the Psalms. That's a long, long time. Excuse me. 115 of the Psalms, 115 out of 150, have inscriptions before them. The most common of them is a Psalm of David. But I have come to believe that the, the inscriptions that precede the Psalms are very important for us and that actually we should receive them as a part of the Psalm itself, meaning they're inspired scripture. Now, you know, for a long, long time, Old Testament scholarship has told us that we can basically ignore these inscriptions. They're not important. They're probably written at a later date by someone who um, thought that this would fit David or this would fit someone else, and so they added these words to them. Let me show you a couple of places in the New Testament, though, where the authors of the New Testament, Jesus and Peter, speak explicitly about the, uh, the inscriptions to the Psalms and accept them as true. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, 35 through 37. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said... How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then look at 
what is next? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Psalm 110.1. And the inscription at the beginning of Psalm 110 says, a Psalm of David. Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Because Jesus here is indicating to us in an emphatic way, David himself said, he's indicating to us that he accepts the validity of this inscription that precedes Psalm 110. Uh, look also at uh, Acts chapter 2. Now, there are, there are more places than these, but uh, let all things be established at the mouth of two or three witnesses. We'll only use two witnesses here since it's the word of God. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he, should be, should, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 34, for David did not descend in, ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... He also quotes Psalm 110, 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, a footstool for your feet. Now, that's just two examples that we have in the New Testament. But I would suggest to you, when you read the Psalms, and I, I try to teach my students to do this, even in worship, if you're going to read an entire Psalm and it has an inscription at the beginning, read that inscription. You know, many Hebrew texts of the book of Psalms start their verse numbering not with our verse 1, but verse 1 in those texts is the inscription at the beginning. And so those Hebrew texts are also recognizing that these inscriptions belong to the Psalms. So um, what did I say? 115 Psalms have in inscriptions. We ought to treat them uh, in the way that the New Testament authors and our Lord Jesus did with respect as a part of Scripture. Now, some of them are lengthy descriptive settings, and some of them have unknown or debated Hebrew words, and that's true, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes if time permits. Nevertheless, even if there's a word there that we don't really know and understand, it's still God's Word, and we are to receive it, and we receive it with a sense of reverence and appreciation that He has revealed this to us. And many times those longer descriptions really help us because they put the psalm into an historical context. And we can go back and read, for example, in First and Second Samuel in David's lifetime, we can see the incidents that led him to speak to the Lord in the way that he does. Now, there are other psalms that are psalms of David that we can't particularly pinpoint to any moment in his life, but we, we don't have to do that. We can use what has been given to us. I, I think sometimes when in the Psalms that, that don't have specific designators that point us to this incident or that incident in David's life, that in some ways that is helpful to us as well because they become more generally applicable to us. So read, read those things and, and give them the respect that they deserve as an inspired word of God. Now, I'm sure you've noticed as you've read through the book of Psalms 
that it itself is divided up into five parts, five books, book one, two, three, four, and five. Book one includes Psalms 1 through 41. Book two, they're they're uneven lengths. If, If they were even, they'd be 30 in each one. Book two is from Psalm 42 to 72. Book three is from Psalm 73 to 89. Book four is from Psalm 90 to 106. And book five is from Psalm 107 to 150. Now, what's interesting is that each of these books concludes with a prayer or a doxology or a statement. Um, Look with me at at 41.13. Psalm 41.13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Amen. That ends the first book. Then turn over to Psalm 72 and its conclusion. And we read, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Then we see book three printed before us. We turn to Psalm 89, which is the conclusion of the third book. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We turn over just a few pages to Psalm 106. And what do we see there? Once again, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and all the, let all the people say amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then, of course, Psalm 150 is a benediction to the entire Psalter, which is another way to say the book of Psalms. In fact, someone has, uh, I think, wonderfully uh, expressed the relationship between the last five Psalms and the entire book. They say, this one has said that those five Psalms are like the grand finale in a fireworks display. And Psalm 150 is the greatest of all because in every line of that psalm you have the word praise. It's just a constant call to us to praise God. Now, um, these five books, people, you might ask the question, why is the book of Psalms divided up into five books? And there are a variety of opinions as to why that happens. The, the, The current one, which I think is actually very, very good, is that the book of Psalms is arranged in such a way to speak of David and David's kingdom on earth and then point us to heaven. The first book of Psalms then speaks to us about David's kingdom at its high point. Now, not always, because even in David's life, there were low points, but David's kingdom at its high point as it leads to Solomon. The second book of Psalms deals with the problems. Now, we're speaking in generalities here, okay? It speaks about the problems that faced David's kingdom. The third book of Psalms speaks about disaster because it speaks about the end of David's kingdom, especially as that came in the attack of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and the deportation of the Israelites. And when you come, um, maybe you can just turn back a few pages in your Bible again to the end of the third book, Psalm 89. 
you, you get this sense. You read the first part of Psalm 89, and it's an uplifting praise to God. I, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, and you read through, and, and it tells us over and over again how great God is. But then you come to verse uh, 38. But now you have cast off and rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust, etc. And it goes on, uh, verse 46. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? The psalm that, that began in the, at the heights of praise is suddenly down in the depths of the lowest valley. Where is God and what has happened? David's kingdom, David has long been dead, but David's kingdom, well, actually, David wrote this psalm. But remember what we saw before, David was a prophet. David knows that ultimately his kingdom on earth will come to nothing. It will be crushed. Sin will overwhelm it. Now what happens in Psalm 90, uh, the next book of, of Psalms, which begins in Psalm 90, is really interesting. Because it turns our attention away from David's kingdom and it begins more and more to emphasize the glory of God in heaven. Think about Psalm 90. You're familiar with it. Um, Moses, the man of God, writes this psalm, and he speaks about death. Death is everywhere. For 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, Moses presided over the deaths of a million Israelites. When, once I figured out how many people had to die on average per day in order for a million people to die over the course of, of 40 years, it's an enormous amount. And that's just the average every day. Every day, the, the, uh, the, of course, they didn't have obituaries, but the news would spread. So-and-so has died, so-and-so has died, so-and-so has died. And Moses writes about that. And his response to the death that is all around him in the world is to turn his eyes to God in heaven and know that God is the same forever, even though everything around him is failing. So it's a very fitting beginning of the fourth book of Psalms. In fact, you might ask the question, if this is the oldest psalm, and almost certainly it is, why is it Psalm 90? Why isn't it Psalm 1? Why, 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 why are they not placed together chronologically? Well, it doesn't fit there, you see. It fits here. Because it begins the process of turning our attention away from a fallen world and the, 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 the worst part of the curse, which is death, to turn us to the God who is eternal, who lives forever and ever, and who grants life. So Psalm 90 begins book four, which introduces us more and more to, to the Lord of heaven. Here's an interesting trivia thing for you, okay? I, I, don't, I wanted to phrase this in the form of a question, but I didn't know how to do so without giving away the answer, okay? We are very familiar with the word hallelujah. We use it regularly. Do you know that the word hallelujah, praise the Lord, doesn't appear in the book of Psalms until Psalm 104? Now, that's surprising, isn't it? The first time I read that, I, I, it just took me by surprise. Because you would expect that the first 103 Psalms, somewhere in there, you'd have the word hallelujah. You don't. It doesn't appear until well into the fourth of the five books of Psalms. But by the time you get to the end of the fifth book of Psalms, hallelujah is everywhere. In fact, it's the beginning and the ending of Psalm 150. So there's a movement from what happens on earth 
to the glory of God in heaven. Now, once again, you have to remember, this is generally speaking about these five books. There are moments, even in the fifth book, that seem to descend into difficulty, to trouble, and and express to us the reality of the world in which we live. So I'm, I'm speaking generally, this is what the Psalms do. They present to us David at the height of his kingdom. Then they present to us the conflicts that exist, especially with the nations around. Then they show to us the disaster that comes upon the Davidic kingdom, because ultimately they are taken away into exile. Then we begin a shift in the the overall themes of the book of Psalms, turning us heavenward, showing that our hope is not really in the earthly line of David. Our hope is somewhere else, and that hope is in the eternal kingdom of God, which we know comes to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we we read the book of Psalms with that that sense. And one of the things that, that I find helpful about that is that when I read a particular psalm, it helps me to place it within that storyline. See, the argument here is um, the book of Psalms is not put together haphazardly. It's not just that somebody found 150 poems that he believed were inspired, and he happened to put them together in this way, but rather that there's a purpose and a reason guided by the Holy Spirit that helps us uh, to see what the book of Psalms is all about. And so I I find that tremendously helpful as I begin to think through what's going on in any particular psalm. And of course, we'll be studying a psalm from the fifth book um, today uh, in our next service, God willing, and I hope that that will be encouraging to you. Right, my time's running away. There are at least seven different authors to the psalms, that is, Seven authors who are named. Some of the, the Psalms don't have names attached to them, although I'll say something about that in a moment. David is explicitly mentioned as the author of 73 Psalms. So that's two under half of the Psalms. We're told a Psalm of David in, in one way or another, but David's name is attached to the inscription at the Psalm. Now, look with me at Acts 4.25. This is the church at prayer facing persecution from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 24, when they heard it, when they heard the report of what happened when the men were brought before the chief priests and the elders, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you know where, where, which psalm that comes from? Psalm 2. comes from Psalm 2. But if you turn to Psalm 2, you will not see at its head a psalm of David. Okay, but here we have an inspired testimony from the New Testament that tells us that Psalm 2 was written by David. So that increases his tally to 74, and there are probably others as well. Now, David's Psalms are also clustered or gathered together in various places. Um, For example, Psalms 3 through 9 are said to be a Psalm of David. 
Then Psalms 11 through 32 are said to be a Psalm of David. What about Psalm 10 right in the middle? It doesn't say a Psalm of David. But as you read through, there's every indication that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 belong together, making Psalm 10 then an undesignated, nevertheless easily to be recognized psalm that was authored by David himself. And so there's reason to think that more than 74 psalms uh, were penned by that great king, the one whose heart was uh, with God. The second most frequently named author of the psalms is Asaph. Asaph uh, penned 12 of the psalms, and it's interesting, Psalm 50, and then the rest of his psalms are all placed together at the beginning of the fourth book, Psalm 73, um, the third book, Psalm 73 through 83. So I, I asked the question, why was one Psalm of Asaph separated out uh, from all the rest of his? And it's because it's a, an explicitly messianic psalm that speaks about Christ, and it's just before, think about this, it's the psalm before David's confession of his sin. It's the gospel that precedes David's admission that he has broken the law and in breaking the law, must be the beneficiary of the gospel. So it, it, it seems that when the Psalms were put together, Psalm 50 was chosen specifically as an introduction to what happens in Psalm 51. You see, they're, they're, they're put together for a purpose. The sons of Korah are mentioned 10 to 12 times. Uh, Solomon, David's son, penned two of the Psalms. At least two are attributed to him. Maybe there were more, but at least two. Then we have Ethan, Heman, and Moses. About 50 of them are anonymous, but as we've seen, there are reasons to believe that even though they are anonymous, we may be able at times to locate the author. We know specifically Psalm 2 was written by David, probably Psalm 10, and probably some others as well. Now, because the Psalms were intended for worship and for devotion, some of them are acrostic psalms. Um, an acrostic, well, you've all read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the biggest acrostic psalm. It was brilliantly put together. And remember, when you're reading through it, there are 26 stanzas of eight verses. And before each one in most Bibles, there'll be a Hebrew letter. It'll say Aleph, then it'll say Beit, then it'll say Gimel, then it'll say Dalet. And it tells you that all of the, the verses within that stanza begin with that same Hebrew letter. That's what an acrostic does. It begins in alphabetical order with the letters. This is one of the reasons that Psalm 10 almost certainly is written by David because Psalms 9 and 10 together form an acrostic psalm. Uh, what, what, the conclusion of 9 is continued, the next letter is continued at the beginning of 10. So they fit together. So almost certainly, they belong together like this. Um, likewise, you know from reading your Bibles that there are a lot of Hebrew terms um, that aren't translated for us when, uh, into our English Bibles. The most common of them is the word selah. It occurs 71 times throughout the book of Psalms, most frequently in the first three of the books. And there are different opinions as to what Selah means. Some think 
Some people think that it's a musical term that means pause, and there's some kind of musical interlude that would take place here. More commonly, there is the idea that it means stop and meditate. Think about what has just been said. Give it some thought. That probably is the case. Uh, We have another term that occurs uh, in several places, higayon. We're not sure what it means. It probably means to meditate, but it also could mean play some quiet music here. Um, The word miktam appears in Psalm 16 and in Psalms 56 through 60, and uh, it perhaps means to offer up to God a silent prayer. Uh, It's related linguistically to a Hebrew word which means to cover, and so some people have suggested that it means to cover the mouth, not quite the way my mouth is covered right now, but if you can imagine putting your hand over your mouth so that someone cannot hear you. So a miktam may be a psalm that was intended for private devotion and to be offered up to God in that way. Uh, Thirteen times the Hebrew word maskil uh, appears, especially in inscriptions to the Psalms, and it's related to a Hebrew word, that, uh, a verb that means to make useful or to make skillful. And so it is, has been suggested that the word maskil means to give instruction. So that Psalm specifically is intended to instruct God's people in one thing or another. Uh, a, an interesting word occurs in Psalm 7. It's the Hebrew word shigayon. It appears also in Habakkuk chapter 3. Now, most of these terms are limited to the Psalms, but here we have one that appears in uh, the prophet Habakkuk's uh, prophecy. And it is suggested that what it means, it, it has reference to uh, profound emotions that we might experience, even emotions that cause us, in response to what we hear, to reel, to to be staggered by whatever the event is. And if you think about the book of Habakkuk, that makes sense. Remember, Habakkuk's problem was that uh, he saw wickedness in Israel, and he cries out to God for judgment to come, and the Lord says, I intend to send judgment, and I'm sending it in the the Babylonians, and that makes him even more... um, confused because the Babylonians are even worse than the Israelites. They're a much more wicked people. And Habakkuk asks the question, Lord, how can you use that instrument to punish your own people when they're so wicked? And the Lord comes and he reveals himself to Habakkuk in such a way that Habakkuk says, ultimately in in the third chapter, whatever the Lord does, I will accept. He's brought to that point. But what he sees and what he hears from the Lord causes him to be staggered. His, his faith is being tested. And so Shagayon probably, or, or at least, I won't say probably, but perhaps carries that sense to us of, of a very strong emotional reaction that we would have to circumstances around us. Uh, there's a couple more uh, Hebrew words. Uh, for time's sake, I'm going to skip over them. Some of them we know should be translated as prayer or perhaps praise. Likewise, um, there are a lot of phrases at the beginning of the Psalms that are liturgical. That is, they're directions that are given for the use of these Psalms in worship. Fifty-five times 
you'll read, to the choir master, which gives us a direct indication that this psalm was composed in such a way that it ought to be used in public worship. That phrase also appears in Habakkuk chapter 3, interestingly enough. Then there are more um, Hebrew words that, that are used in some of the inscriptions. Sometimes they can be translated, like, um, according to the deer of the dawn, in Psalm 22, or with a couple of different variations, according to lilies, Psalm 45, 69, uh, 60, and 80. These may be tunes that were being used by the Israelites. You know, the Scottish Psalter would be published without uh, music to it. And uh, when somebody wanted to sing one of the psalms, they would also choose a tune that was familiarly identified with that psalm, but they weren't all the same. In fact, um, if you ever see the Blue Trinity Hymnal, there's four different versions of Psalm 23 in that because it fit the meter fits a variety of tunes. And so it's thought that perhaps these inscriptions have reference to the types of tunes that are presented uh, or that would have been used to sing the psalms in worship. All right, time is really running away from me. Um, there are a variety of types of psalms. There's a lament psalm, and this is a psalm that asks God for deliverance. How long, O Lord? And there are two kinds of them. There are personal lament psalms, that is, an individual finds himself in trouble and so cries out to the Lord. But there are also corporate lament psalms, which, in which the, the psalm writer represents all of the people of God, and they are in difficulty, and on behalf of all of the people, he cries out for help. Another type of psalm is the psalm of thanksgiving. And these also can be psalms that are individual, personal, or they are psalms that can be corporate. Um, it's our practice in our home on Thanksgiving Day when we have our dinner before we do so to read a psalm of thanksgiving uh, to give glory to God. There are psalms of sovereignty which express to us the fact that the Lord is king. There are psalms of pilgrimage. These are songs that would have been sung when traveling to Jerusalem. There are royal psalms which speak about the king as God's chosen ruler. And uh, sometimes when you read them, for example, Psalm 45, is it speaking about David or is it speaking about Solomon or is it speaking about Christ? And the answer is yes. You see, David and Solomon are simply earthly pointers to the greatness and glory of the eternal king who is Jesus Christ himself. There are wisdom psalms. There are psalms of trust and confidence. And of course, there are those difficult imprecatory psalms where we, the psalmist cries out to God for help. Now, the, uh, perhaps the most important type of psalm for us is the messianic psalm. That is the psalm that deals with, points to Jesus Christ. And there are many of them that are explicit the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament, as I said before, is Psalm 110, but it's not the only explicitly messianic psalm that is a psalm that in prophetic terms looks forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. But you might ask the question, are any of the psalms implicit? That is, are they implicitly, do they 
uh, imply an application to the Messiah? And the answer is maybe all of them do. See, Martin Luther believed that Christ was the one who was speaking in all of the different Psalms. I would say this. We ought to seek uh, to, to find, to recognize Jesus Christ in the book of Psalms. Because you know what, you know what the book of Psalms was in many ways? It was the, the worship book of, of the Old Testament people. It became the worship book of the New Testament church. It was an expression of faith. All of those things are true. But the, the most important reason that the book of Psalms was written was so that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, had a prayer book to use when he came to God because the Psalms were his prayer book. This is what he employed as he came before God to worship, which makes the Psalms all the more wonderful when you know that the Lord in his sovereignty and in his providence had brought them together so that at the right time, to, to use the language of Galatians 4.4, when, when all things were prepared and came together, when the Messiah, when Christ descended from heaven and was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, there was prepared for him a book. And that book was the means by which he could offer up praise to his Father. Well, there's so much more that I want to say. I want to talk about groupings of the Psalms, for example. Uh, you ever notice that sometimes in the book of Psalms you have um, um, cl clusters, that's, that's the word that I like to use, clusters of Psalms that are related to each other. Some of them are easy to see. For example, the Songs of Ascent, which are Psalms 121 through 134. The Songs of Ascent are almost certainly songs that were written for pilgrims to sing on their journey to Jerusalem for the three festivals where all of the men of Israel were required to come. And those, um, what is it, 13, 14 psalms, interestingly enough, almost every one of them makes reference either explicitly or implicitly to the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. You remember Aaron was to raise his hands, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. Those psalms have reference to the Aaronic blessing. And so they're very appropriate to imagine the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem in, in anticipation of coming to the temple where God was to be worshipped and singing these songs of, of, of ascent. And of course, you ever notice in the Bible that when someone goes to Jerusalem, they always go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is on the mountaintop. So you always say that. So a song of ascent brings you, you ascend to Jerusalem, but it's more important than just the physical act of going up the mountain. The ascent really is symbolically to turn your eyes to the God of heaven and earth and sing his praises. I mean, there's just so much in the Bible, the symbolism of the Bible that points us upward. Uh, we also have a cluster of the songs of Asaph. There are also a couple of clusters of hallelujah psalms, Psalm 111 through 113, and then 146 through 150. But it's also interesting, if you pay close attention, there are other um, clusters of psalms that are not designated so by their inscription at the beginning, but that share a common theme. For example, Psalms 42 and 43, at the beginning of 
book two of the Psalms. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They, they share the same refrain. Why you cast out, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? It occurs twice in Psalm 42 and then again in Psalm 43. This may be a hint that originally this was one psalm that was then broken up into two. But it's good when you're reading through the book of Psalms to give careful attention to these, the, the variety of things that are present and recognize that they were often put together um, for specific purposes and to, to draw attention to specific themes. Um, when were the um, Psalms compiled? Now, that's a question that we can't answer with certainty, but the best answer that I've seen is this. Considering the fact that they include Psalms that were written after the exile, probably the Psalms were compiled in the form that we have them now after Israel returned to Jerusalem, and the most likely person to have done that is Ezra the priest, the godly priest who was the spiritual leader of the nation of Israel. And so it's thought that Ezra, after Israel came back from their exile, that Ezra took the 150 Psalms and put them together in form that we have them. It may be that there were earlier collections of Psalms than that. Remember how we saw the prayers of Jesse are ended? And, and that, at the end of the second book of Psalms, almost indicates that that was the end of a collection. Well, it may have been. And then Ezra took others that he recognized were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and incorporated them together into what we now know as the book of Psalms. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some things, but my time has run out. I hope that that's encouraging to you and helpful to you. If you want to take one thing away from this, it's a simple application. Read the book of Psalms. Make it your own. Think through it. Read it carefully. Um, you know, a helpful book to work through the Psalms with, sometimes it's a little bit, it's a helpful book, is Spurgeon's Treasury of David. It's, it's helpful. It's worthwhile. And uh, you could do a lot worse than reading through the Psalms along with Spurgeon. I don't want to, uh, to promote my own work here, but years ago, I was asked to condense Spurgeon's Treasury of David into 366 daily readings, and that's about to be reprinted uh, and come out again, available to you. I, I didn't even think about that till just this moment, so I didn't put all of this together to try to sell that book to you. I, I don't know what, what all is happening with its publication. But that's a simple way to use Spurgeon to help us think through the book of Psalms. I hope that that's encouraging. Um, when we come to worship, we'll look at Psalm 139, and I hope that will be encouraging as well. Let's bow together and pray. Oh Lord, thank you for working in the hearts of your people, causing them to write the truth about you and the truth about their own lives, their experiences, their, their sins, their trust in the gospel. Thank you that Christ had a book, a, a set of poems that he could use to worship you. We pray that you would help us to use this that you have provided to us to strengthen and nourish our souls. 
Now, as we prepare to worship you, we ask that you'd give us grace in Jesus' name.